Sustainability in Finance. Sustainability in Finance. A podcast hosted by the International Sustainable Finance Center in Prague. Join us and explore different perspectives of finance and its importance for the Central and Eastern European region. Hello and welcome. My name is Julian Toth and you are listening to Sustainability in Finance. The following episode is an audio recording of a panel discussion from the CE Sustainable Finance Summit, the largest conference of its kind in the region, which took place in Prague in May 2022. Good morning, everyone. So I'd like to say hello and welcome everybody to the CEE Sustainable Finance Summit. So thank you very much for those who have turned out in the morning and also to those online who are joining in their pajamas. Good morning. So I'm joined with a fantastic lineup of panelists. Each of them uh, introduce themselves so you get to know them a little bit better. And maybe as a quick introduction, my name is Andy. I'm an investment manager for Telia Impact Ventures. So we're backing founders who are making social and environmental change. So what are we looking into today? Well, innovation is becoming more and more of a hot topic in the region, and we have some absolute superstars emerging. And yet, statistically, when we look at things, the CEE region and Europe in large is, uh, is lagging behind slightly in innovation. So today we're going to look into why, what might be some of the hurdles, why might we be lagging behind in our region. Uh, we're also going to look into what do we think are the tweaks, not just from a uh, public policy perspective, but also from a private market perspective, that we can make to actually start to improve and create the ecosystem where innovation can thrive. Um, and finally, we want to leave you with a bit of inspiration for a hopeful future. I'm going to let each of my panelists introduce themselves. Please give a one-minute introduction, talk about your background, and please maybe make a comment on what is your role to play in the innovation ecosystem in the CEE region. So I'll start with Senta. Good morning, everyone. Very nice to be with you. So uh, my background is in biocybernetics. I studied uh, here in Prague, uh, Czech uh, Technical University. And then my career went basically together with one company, Hewlett-Packard. I started in Prague, but uh, I ended in Silicon Valley, where I kind of got to be close to innovation, and I worked there for eight years. And then I decided, when my son decided that he will return from his university studies, that I should also go back to my home country and return back yeah, what I learned there. And I started actually working in two jobs. I started uh, being the chief innovation officer for Deloitte. And at the same time, I started teaching uh, at the ICEMS, Visokashko Ekonomická, and I teach uh, critical thinking in business futurology. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. And I also read somewhere that you're a trained sommelier. That's true. So yeah. I will be looking out for you. But this is not drinks. so much connected to the innovation. <laughs> yeah? It's more like traditional history. Still important for the ecosystem. Marcus. Thank you. Yes. Hello. So from my side, I'm Markus Raunig. I'm chairman of Austrian Startups. So I'm running the startup umbrella platform of the Austrian startup ecosystem where we have the goal to make entrepreneurship as common as skiing, which often mm -hmm. sounds a bit weird if you heard about it, but uh, in the end, you know, this is what we are known for in Austria. We are known for our good skiers, and I, I want the same to be true for entrepreneurship. And next to that, I'm also on the board of the European Startup Network, where we have the goal to, to better connect the European startup landscape. And I'm also hosting um, one of Austria's leading tech podcasts called Future Weekly. And I read that you built a football club. 
<laughs> yeah, that's true. I, exactly how I <laughs> fell in love with entrepreneurship when I yeah. built my football club out of school. Wow. <laughs> okay, Marian. Good morning. My, my name is Marian Gestik. Uh, I'm the managing director of uh, GeForce. Uh, the way we look at innovation in uh, Central Eastern Europe is, uh, is maybe the opposite one. We don't worry about supporting companies in the region. We worry about how do we bring the world-class innovation into the region. So that's why we, we built uh, a climate technology uh, investment arm. And when we started about two years ago, we had a dilemma because there was about 70 early stage uh, investors, VCs, incubators, accelerators in the region already. But the quality was not very good. So what we decided to do is, is do the opposite. So we teamed up with a world-class organization called Founders Factory, based in London, which invested uh, to date in over 300 companies. And we use that model and apply it into the climate technology part because we believe that the EU has traditionally been on the forefront of green innovation. And there was not enough time for any specific place to build a world-class cluster. And I hope uh, with the EU's history of backing green innovation and with our know-how of technology investing, we can build this in centuries in Europe. Uh, and you're also a patron of the modern arts, I read, with the Tate Gallery. I like modern arts, yes. Yeah. I'm on the uh, acquisition committee oh. of Tate, Tate Gallery, which is the most visited tourist attraction in the UK uh, for the region of centuries in Europe. Thank you. Michael. So good morning, uh, my name is Michal Koshina. I work at the European Investment Fund where I manage uh, several Central and Eastern European investment programs focused on venture capital and private equity. Uh, European Investment Fund is part of the AB Group uh, and uh, basically, uh, among other things, a fund of funds manager and uh, one of the leading investors in venture capital across Europe. Now probably something beyond 20 billion uh, euros uh, with, of assets under management. Uh, I've worked in development finance for about 10 years, uh, always sort of around startups, innovation, and how to, how to basically support innovation with public funding. And I think that's about it. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, and last but not least, Jan. Hey, hey, good morning. Uh, I'm Jan Burian. I'm with IDC. I'm uh, head of manufacturing insights for EMEA. And maybe for those who are not that familiar with what IDC is doing or with our team is doing, that's we, we do analyze the especially manufacturing supply chain environment uh, in terms of digital transformation efforts and in terms of the, I would say, adoption of the innovations. So my, my background was uh, or is still like a sort of consulting work for the big four companies and prior to that I was working in a manufacturing environment. So I really tried, or which is something I'm using for my career, that really the perspective from the bottom, from the from manufacturing to the to the top, I mean, to the, to the like a big enterprises, mostly in Western Europe. It's an extremely hot topic right now. <laughs> okay, thank you. So my first question, and this is same question for all of the panelists, so we'll just go along. Please try to keep your answer to five minutes max. Uh, we're talking innovation in the CEE region. Uh, I would like to know from your opinion, what are perhaps one or two of the obstacles that we're facing that maybe are unique to the region or we're yet to develop? And then what are one or two tweaks or changes that you would recommend? It can be private sector, it can be public sector, to try to overcome these hurdles that you see. So, center. <laughs> okay, very nice question. So, uh, I think, let me start with like a provocative question. What is the CEE? 
Yeah? I think it's a very artificial geographical body yeah, uh, where we speak many languages, where we have many historical backgrounds, and we are expected to, to be fantastic in innovation. Yeah? So I think uh, this is the first struggle, yeah, that we are basically a very artificial body. And then the second struggle, I think, uh, and I'm very skeptical on that, but I will be positive on those obstacles, how to, how to solve it. I think that uh, we don't have any brand in innovation. Yeah. Uh, we have brand in innovation in Estonia, yeah, and we have brand in innovation around those bodies and around those startups uh, which already made it, and they are making us famous, but no one connects them back to CEE region. You typically connect them back either to Czech Republic, Romania, Croatia, yeah, but no one is basically thinking about those successes in the context of CEE region. So I would say, Complication, complex region, many languages, and lack of brand. Those would be the barriers. And how to solve it? I think it will not come overnight. It's basically a big job in front of us. And I think we will solve it uh, with the wonderful talent which we have in our region. I think uh, that we have a, a great tradition in engineering. Uh, we have a great tradition in uh, being very adaptable here yeah, on our markets. We are, uh, and I can say because I worked in the US yeah, in Silicon Valley, we are very adaptable. We can improvise. We are not one-sided. We don't have people who are really experts only, but our people from CE region, they can be like, how to say, jacks of many trades. Yeah, I, I would call it in Czech, Ferdam Ravenec, Práce všeho druhu, which means that we are very adaptable and generalable yeah, for whatever is needed. And plus, I think we are super good in problem solving. And yeah, so uh, with the focus on our talents and with some kind of uh, maybe better network around CE innovation community, and I think this is what we are doing here, I think with uh, coaching, mentoring, education, yeah, we can basically solve all those three hurdles, but uh, it will take generations. Yeah? I, I think it will take maybe two or three generations, but we are on a good path. <laughs> yeah. Can I, can I dig down a little bit deeper on the branding? Because yes. this is something I haven't heard before. What, why do you think that uh, we're not able to establish a strong brand in the region? Because we just work in silos. Yeah. Uh, look at our uh, like best practices, those unicorns, what they have in common. I, I was thinking about it uh, yesterday and there is basically no commonality. Maybe uh, we can say that the commonality is through the leaders. All those fantastic unicorns from our CE region, they have very charismatic leaders, typically with technical background. Yeah? That's why I stress this kind of uh, very good technological engineering in our region. And I think it comes, uh, I have an explanation, but maybe now I'm talking a little bit like veteran. I think it comes from the moment when my generation, after the Velvet Revolution, kind of decided what will be our future. And we were young, talented, professional, and we knew some languages. And we decided not to go to medicines and law schools and business schools, but we decided let's go to tech. Because this will be the branch where you will not care about politics. You will show yeah, your talents, you will show your logical approach to algorithms, yeah, to coding, to programming, and you will have a good career, most probably even international career. Yeah? So I think our generation started this kind of trend 
And I think the others followed, and you see that the majority of CE startups are actually recruited from the tech backgrounds mm. or dropouts. Yeah, mm. this, is another, this is another story. Uh, those people who had uh, like entrepreneurship in their blood and maybe even in their families, yeah, because it's typically also about the roots, and they were kind of making it without universities. Yeah, mm. yeah. Yeah, I, I do see that technical expertise is yeah, becoming a brand I think of is, the CE is the key. Is the key. Yeah. Okay. But unfortunately, if you go to Silicon Valley, no one knows. And they are kind of, uh, they still uh, name Czech Republic as Czechoslovakia. They confuse Slovak and Slovenia. Yeah. It's, uh, it's where my parents we, say that I yeah, live in Czechoslovakia. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. exactly. So Marcus, one or two obstacles and one or two changes. <laughs> When we talk about obstacles from a startup perspective, it usually comes down to, I believe startups generally have three scarcities that they always face. It's um, talent, money, and time. They always need good people, they need money to fund the business, and they are always running out of time. So whatever you do on a policymaker level to increase those scarcities instead of decreasing them, is usually a problem. And we have those problems, especially in the CEE region. That's universally true for startups all around the world, but especially in, in the CEE region, I have the feeling that we are sometimes going in the wrong direction. You know, if, if, if you're looking for good talent, it's super difficult to get international talent into CEE mm -hmm. countries, to get visa for them. It's much easier in, in other countries. If you talk about capital, we, we create incentives, or we actually create regulation that our foundations, our pension funds, that it's difficult for them to fund innovation because it's, it's too risky for them. But again, it doesn't make sense. And the same is true for, for time because there's all kinds of bureaucracy that you need to go through if you want to found a company, if you want to get an investor on board. It's complicated. So I think those things are, are quite simply there's a few things that you need to change to make it easier for startups to succeed in the CE. That's quite straightforward. But if we're talking about what, what it really needs to, to change the landscape, I think you need to actually look at the culture. And I think that that's coming back to what, what you said, that in the end, we need more entrepreneurship. It's culturally, especially in comparison to, to the Western world, or more Western world, let's say America, for example, the most entrepreneurial society, maybe, if you, and that's an Austrian perspective, but if you grow up in Austria, there is half of the population who never even thinks about the possibility of starting something. And this is, this is a missed opportunity because I believe entrepreneurship is, is the key to develop society, both on, on a personal level, where it opens a horizon, that's what I mentioned with my football club, when I started this football club, it opened my eyes because suddenly every problem became an opportunity, everything that annoyed me made me think, can I actually maybe change that? But it's on an economic level true. Startups are the main growth engine, the main engine for new jobs, but also on a societal level, and, and this is the sustainable a finance summit, and in the end, the big problems of society, I believe, are most likely to be to solved by companies, by individuals, and to activate that potential, we need everybody to realize that they can change something. And, and this is the main issue, and that's playing the long game. That's why you have to go into education. Hmm. 
I always, so I'm on the VC side and I'm always facing that chicken and egg of is it because there's a lack of money that there's a lack of entrepreneurship or is it the other way around because there's a lack of entrepreneurship, the money hasn't flown there? Where do you stand on that? I mean, in the end, you're right, chicken egg. You can activate both sides and for sure there will be, you get that circle going both ways. I, I believe what's smarter is to go through the entrepreneurs because what's always the danger if you go through the money side And obviously the incentives are there. Then you know there, there is the carrot and, and people say, okay, that's where I can earn a lot of money. But in the end, what I've also come to learn through my experiences with early stage startups is that usually the startups are more successful if you're intrinsically motivated because it's so tough, like this roller coaster of founding a startup. If there's not an intrinsic motivation for you to solve this problem that's really annoying you, it's tough to go through the bad times. We're now at uh, exactly the moment of time where the next few years from a macroeconomic perspective, that will be tough. And people who are not passionate about what they're doing, I'm not always sure whether they're willing to go through these lows then. Okay, thank you. Marianne, one or two obstacles, one or two uh, changes. Uh, maybe the biggest obstacle, which is also a challenge, is the inflexibility, is the big bureaucracy when it comes to hiring talent. Because uh, great people need other great people to help them. Nobody can build a great company alone. Uh, it's all, always about a team. And uh, especially now in the post-pandemic times, it, it's a massive opportunity to make it more flexible to hire people from anywhere. Because the moment you realize you can hire people not just from, from Prague or Czech Republic, but from anywhere in the world, your company's potential is just quadrupled. And we face it alone in, in our company as well as in the companies where we invest in both ways. One is maybe half of the companies where we invested, I didn't meet the founders in person. We just talk on a weekly basis virtually. And uh, when we hire people into our team, even people from the centuries in Europe would not work with us if they could not live where they want to live. So we have colleagues living in Denmark from Slovakia, for example. Colleagues from Slovakia living in the UK, in Spain but they would not work with us in Slovakia itself because they want to be flexible. And this flexibility is a tremendous uh, opportunity for us, especially post-pandemic times, because the, uh, the regulation for employing people is still very stiff and complicated. And if it can be more flexible and adjusted to the post-pandemic times, that's an opportunity. On the underlying layer of what is wrong with uh, the culture here, when it comes to entrepreneurship, I think there is a lack of ambition. This is, for us, the most important uh, hurdle. And uh, we can fight it, we can try to overcome it, but my personal belief is that we can, we can show people how to do it better by not investing into the B-class of entrepreneurs from the region, but investing into the world-class and bring them to the region. So uh, this is why we invest globally in climate technology companies. We don't invest in, in just companies from the region because the bar would be much lower. And uh, uh, because we invest globally in these companies, our ambition is to then bring them into the EU, and they like that. So we have companies in our portfolio from the US, from Brazil, from Australia, and we just want to make sure they understand the value proposition that even the region of Central Eastern Europe can be used as a uh, springboard into the EU market. Yeah, I mean, we, we really believe that with our companies as well. It's interesting to hear the opposite. So we're trying to take companies uh, from the CEE and send them west, and you're bringing them back. I want to pick up on a point you made about a lack of ambition. That's quite a blanket statement. 
What do you think drives that? Is it, I can't assume that it's cultural. If I look at the US, they've created this kind of Lord of the Flies incentive system where you either have to grow or die. So it fuels, I think, a lot of very cutthroat entrepreneurialism. What, what do you think is driving maybe the lack of ambition as you see it in the region? I don't think there is a driver for lack of ambition. There is a status quo you see around you. If what you see around you are great people with big ambitions and, and uh, drive, you will be attracted by that. But what doesn't motivate you is reading a story about Steve Jobs, who lives on the opposite side, uh, part of the planet. <laughs> what is more motivating to you is, is somebody you know personally or you've heard personally from the next village, which built a company and made it, at, at the very least, internationally outside of, of the country. So having role models, success models who are close by is the best way to beat it. Okay. And I, I start can, to say... Can I add yeah, to it? Absolutely. I think uh, it's not only that, but uh, it's also that uh, our culture, and uh, it goes back to communism, is very afraid, very much afraid of failure. Uh, we are not used to failure in the CE region. Yeah? And I think that it's getting better yeah, with the young generations and it's getting better every time when you go outside of CE region and uh, when you feel those role models around you. But uh, I think it's also about us in CEE uh, wanting, uh, want, wanting to live in comfort because uh, we like our comfort and we are on a sustainable summit. I think that uh, if we want to really save uh, the planet, we need to go and revisit our comfort zones and say like either we will have innovation or we will have our comfort and we can't have both because innovation and creativity you can't plan it it's basically coming if you create an environment for it and if you struggle and if you actually struggle if you have the problems if you have the problems worth solving then you go for it and then you intersect there yeah, maybe uh, several industries intersect or several backgrounds in sustainability typically something around uh, nature here yeah, nature studies and technology if if it intersects and if you have problem to solve then you go for it but if we want to live in comfort we will not have the innovation it's basically you can't have both you need to make the choice yeah, it's an interesting point because you're saying there's a fear of failure, but in my opinion, there's far more fail-safes and uh, safety nets in Europe yeah. than in any other environment that I've lived in. So it's interesting that uh, comfort is maybe the thing that stands comfort in the way. Is, uh, comfort is our problem. Maybe uh, COVID and Ukraine will actually kick us yeah, from our comfort zones, but uh, I don't think that uh, with like, our stable, wonderful lives, we can see like, a huge efforts in the innovation. Why would we? Okay. It's not logical. <laughs> so, Mikhail, you have quite a high-level view, I think, of the region and of some of the policies that are happening to change the region. What's your view of obstacles that are standing in our way and possible changes? So, I agree with everything that I've been saying so far, but uh, I'll focus particularly on one of the scarcities that Marcus mentioned, and that will be money, uh, perhaps not so surprisingly coming as the sort of money provider here. So, despite sort of record VC investment inflows into CE in the past years, and which is really a trend that we've seen globally, right, and across Europe, we are still lagging, right? I see, we, and I say we because I'm from Slovakia, so I sort of very much identify with the region. We are still lagging behind the rest of Europe, and even you could say that we have not benefited from this, let's say, fundraising bonanza to the same extent as the rest of Europe, even though there has been definitely an increase. If we look at the latest uh, industry statistics uh, published recently by 
Investeurope, which is the private equity and venture capital association for Europe. So essentially for 2021, the venture capital and private equity investments that went to the CE region, into companies in the CE region, accounted for only 3% of total European investments. Now, personally, I believe that that percentage is perhaps slightly higher because I mean, it's always difficult to get accurate data in this sector because of its nature, obviously. And I would think that the less established markets probably underreported the data, but it's a very tiny percentage despite all these unicorn rounds and everything we've seen in the past year. At the same time, when we look at the, specifically for venture capital, when we look at the numbers of companies, estimated number of companies that received a venture capital investment last year, for CE as a region, the number was something between 500 and 600, which is actually not far off something like the DAC region, so which obviously includes Germany, Switzerland, Austria, which stood at around like something like 800. So you can see that there is a lot of activity, but also the average investment rounds are much, much smaller. So there is less capital going to those companies. On top of that, in terms of actual share of CE-based funds uh, making investments, they only accounted for 1% of all the investments made by all the funds based in Europe. So that suggests you that there is simply, despite a lot of people thinking otherwise, I know I'm meeting people all the time on the market, fund managers who tell me, oh, there is just too much market and so few opportunities. Well, actually, the data still sort of suggests otherwise, to be honest. So, so there's still a lack of capital, certainly homegrown capital for the sea region. And we certainly don't want borders for capital, not within Europe, definitely. So we don't necessarily, not everybody needs to have their own fund, their, their own ecosystem and so on. We should, we should be removing borders to the, to the, to the extent possible. But uh, there is simply a lack of this capital flowing towards CE, and certainly there should be more of this capital homegrown. Now, in terms of obstacles, like why, why this is happening? So first of all, and the region is still heavily dependent on publicly funded initiatives, heavily, heavily. Essentially, you cannot raise, almost cannot raise a, a larger fund in CE without a public fund initiative like EIF or perhaps some more locally, locally managed one. So we, we lack larger institutional investors, systematic larger institutional investors that we can rely on. And it was already mentioned, pension funds is certainly the big one, in the, the big elephant in the room that should definitely be the, one of the big sources of funding for these funds. There are exceptions to this rule. So maybe going back to what Sesta said, uh, CE is not homogeneous. So there are differences between the countries, of course, and some countries are further than others. Uh, as an example, in Croatia, EIF has invested in the past three years in something like seven funds. And pension funds are in every single one of them. So, so in Croatia, this is a big thing. Pension funds are really looking at asset class investing, and we can see that without them, even with just with us, it would probably not have been possible because we always are also looking to crowd in private investors, to crowd in other capital. So, so this is a big one. We should be removing the regulations and, and basically encouraging them to allocate the capital towards the asset class, similarly to other potential large institutional investors like insurance groups and, and others. Another issue with this is that because the market is so heavily dependent on public funded initiatives, which use capital that has a strong preference to be allocated back towards some country. So basically we're creating, in an already fragmented market, we're fragmenting it further. So, okay, like we give you from a, from a government program, we give you capital to, to a, the Polish government program, to a Polish fund, you have to invest it in Poland. Czech program, in the Czech program fund, you have to invest it in Czech Republic, and so on and so forth. And this works to some extent. I think it works perhaps well enough for something like very small investment, pre-seed seed, where you're just trying to kickstart companies and so on. 
but eventually you hit, hit the wall because once companies get through the valley of death, they need to, they, they already, they already get their revenue streams, they already want to expand the business, grow and so on, and they need larger sums of capital. Those small fragmented individual programs that we have across all these countries cannot really support larger funds that are able to invest in, in simply just one country. They, they need to be able to source the best opportunities across borders and so on and so forth. So really what we should see more is even, and I am fully in favor of public support in this sense, but we should be seeing more pooling of these resources across borders. So we should be removing the borders for these funding initiatives. Um, a third sort of reason for this lack of capital is also that uh, we don't really see that many foreign investors in, in venture capital in the region. I mean, there are definitely some, and they are increasing more. And especially if we're talking about the large rounds where companies making unicorn status, we cannot finance them themselves, uh, ourselves. So obviously, we see more and more investors specific coming in that stage. But it's basically they're coming in almost for a sure bet already, right? Like, especially in C, those unicorns are sometimes unprofitable, right? Or they have basically bootstrapped themselves and somehow made it to the station. Finally, the saviors come when they are maybe not uh, really taking such risks anymore, although definitely they're taking some risks. So th this is an issue that really is perhaps historic. So when we look at the history of venture capital in the region, there were more sort of overtures by foreign investors towards the region in early 2000s. But of course, with the bubble and everything that we, we sort of went through at the time, they got scared and all of them are simply not returning back or are returning very slowly. We cannot do too much about it, it just takes time and the more successes we see in the region, the more they will come back eventually, certainly. So this would be, this would be sort of my, my take uh, okay. on this particular issue. Do you think that we're... So I'm, I'm seeing a couple of forces at the moment. One is that, speaking of bubbles, there's been some very tough couple of weeks in markets and it's starting to trickle its way back through valuations, through private companies. And if valuations are getting cut heavily in the US, it makes Europe look relatively more attractive because the valuations are less inflated to begin with. At the same time, you have this lack of international focus of capital that you alluded to. Do you think we're leaving the door open for big international funds to come and take the last bite of the pie when, at, at this kind of later stage? So I saw yesterday that uh, Al Gore has set up, for example, $1.7 billion uh, venture capital fund to do late stage investments in Europe. Are we missing an opportunity there? We would be. But I hope we are not in the sense that we are actually working together with uh, member states uh, now on setting up an, our own European initiative specifically for this sort of uh, opportunity. So there is a big initiative called Scale Up Europe that EIF is working together currently with the French presidency within the EU, but talking to, to the various member states, there is already a big commitment from the Germans, uh, from Dutch, from some other countries for setting up a, specifically a large fund of initiative for scale-ups. So this would be literally to move more capital towards this stage so that uh, companies don't always have to just go to the US or perhaps even to the China to raise these big mega rounds uh, in order to reach this uh, sort of status. So okay. hopefully this will, this will materialize soon and we will we'll have something. That's fantastic well news. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, by the way, if I just may touch on something you said earlier about the chicken and egg problem when you were talking to Marcus. Right, so is it, is it the opportunities or is it the capital? Now, I agree the chicken and egg, but I'm still more inclined on the capital side in the sense that if the companies, the first, let's say, you start with the companies, if they cannot grow because of lack of capital, 
and they most of them die out. Some of them perhaps manage to bootstrap. They they, they get somewhere they're successful. Then if it's if the success is not there, capital won't be there. So I think the first nudge comes from capital, not just nonsensical throwing money at the market, but smart capital. So you actually help the companies grow. And then as you create this first push, what we've seen in some other countries, particularly in C, where we, we basically launched a first program there, there was basically no market whatsoever, so there are no VC fund managers. We launched a program, we, we found some first-time teams, you know, people who have never managed a fund before, but had relevant experience, they're entrepreneurial, some business angel investment and so on. They put together a fund, they start investing, and all of a sudden, more opportunities start coming to market. Because people saw that, oh, actually, now the thing that I was thinking about while I was at my, perhaps, office desk at some larger corporate, there is somebody who could actually finance that. Right, and, and, and we, we see that it's like a virtual cycle. So once you give this nudge, more opportunities will come, which again creates more opportunity to actually fund them so you can bring in more capital, even more opportunities, and so on and so forth. And it's moving now. Okay, Jan, I think it's important not to presume that all innovation just happens with startups, which is maybe a bit of a presumption that we've made so far. So you have a good view of the industry and of what corporates are doing. Are you seeing, uh, so maybe if you could answer from that perspective, what obstacles are you seeing and uh, what changes could we make to pave the way for more corporate innovation? Yeah, I would say, you know, just to understand our region, it, it's, it's also important to, you know, go, go back to history like 1919, you know, and, you know, for the war and uh, Cold War times, right? So I'm not... And then, and this is that's pretty much like a, still like a heavy impact on, on how we work, how we live now. Right? So we lost, let's say, tens of thousands of, of the super brains during the 80 years, you know, and these are not there. Right? So in 1989, we started, let's say, almost from a scratch, right, with the very little of the elites here, thinkers, you know, most of them there just, you know, moved to Germany after World War II. To Jews, you know, everyone. So that wasn't that ideal initial situation. And it resulted into what, what I call a cheap thinking and the, let's say, the very little ability to take a risk. You know, I think that these are two, I mean, we talk about these ambitions, and it's pretty much the same thing, right? So cheap thinking means that starting from the government, going to the big enterprises, mostly like owned by Czech, because of course that's a little bit different if you have like a company with headquarters somewhere in Western Europe, in the US, and if it's like owned by the local people, it doesn't have to be, they don't have to be like a Czechs, right? But people who, are, who established or developed the company from scratch in this area. And uh, we can see, if you look around, you know, we, we still live from heritage, like over 500 years old thing, you can look around, right? But, but that's it, you know, we, we are adding so little to, to that, right? In terms of the infrastructure, in terms of the, the education, in terms of the, I would say, culture and so on, right? So this all plays a big role. If you go to any Western European city, I'm not talking about Asia, because Asia is extremely somewhere else, you know, it's far, ahead of the Europe, we'll probably end up maybe if we don't and something else or do it differently, we end up maybe as a place where the people from Asia would be coming here just to look at how we live here in the, in the villages, you know, like from the, like a Skansen or how we, how we could call it, you know, and, and, and that is happening right now already, you know, so that's a big issue. So that's starting from, from the top 
And then, of course, industry is very important. I mean, there are two worlds here, right? The world of the, let's say, digital, digital native companies, startups, right? And to be frank, I can see the startups are more like, uh, you know, the, the, it, it won't be probably employing the hundreds of thousands of people, right? So the, because the purpose is mostly to develop something, you know, and after five years, you can just sell it to someone, maybe, right? But majority of these concepts are like that. So it, it won't help to, I would say, to improve the country as a whole is living, right? So you need this symbiosis between the, 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 the industry, like the big enterprises, because these enterprises are also employing the people, the people spending the money for these digital solutions, right? And also a lot of startups, like a technology start tech startups, are somehow testing or selling their solution or developing by themselves in a symbiosis with this bit of companies. You can see in a manufacturing environment, the typical example was Škoda, right? So you can see a lot of small firms doing something like a, also like a digital solutions, whatever, and 99% had that first reference from the Škoda Auto. Right? Because the Škoda was like so, so big, you know, they had the budget. And if there was no Škoda, or such a company, I would say that 60% of this of these let's say tech vendors they just won't exist you know because there will be no one who would be willing to take that risk and give them the chance you know to develop the solution that's the way it is so so these are tours so so if you go so but the, but the Škoda is not a Czech company right Škoda is it's a German company let's be frank you know if you look at the board there's maybe like one one Czech person the rest are the Germans so if you go if but if you go to the like a big Czech own manufacturing company, I mean, also like a majority of them, they are not able to take that risk in terms of, you know, like testing new solutions, for example, or go some, maybe somewhere else. You know, the, we can see the examples in Western Europe and in the US that the manufacturing company turned itself into the, let's say, technology vendor, like a Siemens. Siemens used to be, you know, they, they, they produce sort of like a control systems, engines, whatever. Now they are, let's say, number one in many, many, let's say, digital solutions for the industrial environment, right? So something totally different, right? So we call it, it's sort of like imagination. So you go beyond the pure innovation because everybody's innovating, right? So even like in Indonesia, in Brazil, every environment, every country is innovating. So when we are innovating here, we are saying that we are so good because we digitize the companies, it's, it's too late because when we started, I mean, when we started, when the, the entrepreneur or the, the owners of the companies understood that they need to do something, the world was, let's say, five years ahead, you know? So and it's, 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 this is how it is, right? So especially in area where, which I'm focusing on, that's manufacturing supply chain. We can see we still see the we still see the see that gap. You know, the gap is maybe getting even even wider. So, long story short, it's, it's very important to take the risk. There's a lot of Czech managers who are admiring the Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, and the others. But let's let's be frank. These are these are these guys. They are never able to take extreme risk of of failure. You know, of, of fail. There was so. You know, for the one Tesla, there was, there's, I don't know, like five to ten and other, let's say, e-electric car startups, we just failed, you know, when it came to the things like uh, um, Apple products, pretty much the same, you know, right? So the same people who are, I would say, I mean, here in our country who, who do read these books and they still talk about how they get inspired from some super speaker, uh, they should also 
understand that it's, I mean, to, to admire so, someone in a face when the person is successful, okay, but, but that's, that, that, that's all, that's all that all started with the decision, you know, like a couple, couple of years ago, you know, so that's, so that's what I see, which is really like some kind of like a hurdle here, again, so it's a thing of the culture, but it's not just like in the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial environment, it's also government and it's, it's one thing with each other. Yeah. I really appreciate the point that these bigger companies owe almost a responsibility to the smaller companies to, to build that market validation because it is so important. I've been part of startups that have had their first break from uh, Skoda of the world. A follow-up question is, what you, you mentioned that Siemens were, Siemens were particularly good in innovating. What separates them from other companies that you're seeing that are too afraid to innovate? I would say, I mean, good for Siemens, for example, this is, this is a case, that they went beyond uh, the German borders. Right? So because the German companies, especially in manufacturing environment, they are typically very conservative, but also they are sort of like a, open to the innovation, right? So it like, could be like a paradox, but the, the bigger ones are leading mostly, and uh, I would say that so-called Mittelstand, so let's say, let's say SMEs are following a little bit later, but, but once they get on that path, they just go, go, that, go that direction, right? So, and then for, for this, let's say, big like, uh, enterprises, I think that they benefit from their, uh, let's say, like a worldwide footprint. Uh, so they are able, you know, to pull out the best talents from all around the world, you know, put them together, make them cooperate, and they also they also like to spend uh, some say percentage, even if it's like a let's say like a one percentage of the revenues, it's it's like, I mean, you know, like the, the budget is extreme, you know, so so they are able to to get the people and uh, and also to fund that the the innovations you know? so that's i would say a lot of the companies here in in this region you know they work with a very little margins i mean we have a super super successful managers in terms of managing managing something which someone else gave them you know what i mean right so so you you can you can you have a, you have your own company and you work for someone else. Someone else is create, creating the product and you just assemble it. You know, so, but you can be also super successful if you build the biggest I would say capacities in Europe for painting, for example. Right? Why not? You know, it's it's also like a business model. It could also work, right? But if you're like a small company and you live like a, your margin is like a sense, you know, that's 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 a big issue. Right? Any any disruption could just kill you, you know, literally. So that's the thing, or if you look at the bigger corporations, again, so someone established corporation in, or the company in the US like 50 years ago, now here's the, I don't know, like a Central Europe headquarter. But again, someone else took that risk like 50 years ago, you know, established a company, we have a super check managers here, but they still just sort of, let's say, a pamper something what someone else gave to them. You know, so that's okay. still, there's still, I would say, there's still part like a missing, you know, like a mental part, let's say, to create something and to be real, to be real like, you know, but sometimes, of course, the headquarters are slowing down. What's, I mean, there are also maybe one last point, right? Because that is actually quite interesting. Could be, let's say, two types of situations. One would be that the headquarter is telling you what you should do, like everything, you know, the, all the innovation comes from the from headquarter. That's one situation. The other option, the other is, is that sometimes, and it's, it's like uh, really like a no offense, right? But sometimes the the top management from the I mean from the headquarters he sees this region as a sort of like a 
you know, like, okay, we have some factories here, you know, let them do what they, do, what they want. So they, and, and the people here, they are not, they are actually very clever, in the, especially in this manufacturing. So, so they develop their own solutions, they go to the local vendors, local software providers, and when they succeed, then they roll it out to the other countries, which is good. So my job is mostly Western Europe focused, and I'm pulling out tens of super cool examples from, from this region, and the people in the West, they just, you know, they look at that like, hey, what's, what's going on there, you know? So AR, VR, whatever, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll have so, so many use cases here, for example, IoT, AI, and this type of stuff, you know? So that's, so, so, so I think it's not lost, but we really need the more local, local brands, local companies open to or willing to, to innovate and to be part of the ecosystem and to also create that ecosystem. Yeah. Yes, I'm hearing a lot of building blocks of uh, culture, appetite, risk aversion, education, finance availability. So no one thing by itself can spur innovation, but I think it's, it's a kind of flywheel that's starting to spin, or at least that's my perception as a recent uh, resident. So thank you for the first round of questions. It's good to see also that some Slido questions are coming in, so please keep those coming. Okay, so now I'm going to switch it up a little bit and I'm going to ask each of you a specific question just for you. I'm also going to switch the order just to keep it a little bit fresh. So I'm going to start with Marianne. Talking about debt, you've lived in London, you were the director of Startup Grind in London, so I think you have a pretty good view of pan-European uh, availability of financing. Do you think that uh, debt has enough of a role to play or is there a sufficient debt availability for innovation in Europe? From the perspective of uh, startups, either startups or, uh, or private later stage? I, I don't think that is, uh, is a asset class which is registering uh, European startups as uh, prominently as it should because, as Michal mentioned earlier, there is lack of funding in the EU overall. And this means that, uh, uh, especially scale-ups, feel the burn. And uh, if you simply don't put enough wood into the fire, it's going to be a small flame. And this is what's, what's happening in this region. The, the exceptional companies, they will find funding anywhere. Uh, you will have UiPath, uh, the Romanian company. You will have uh, great companies from this region. They will find uh, global funding, but uh, it's the companies that would have succeeded if they would have enough uh, capital available. I don't see venture that, uh, that mezzanine financing being very, very often spoken about as options for later stage startups because uh, from Series B, Series C, there should be that as an alternative. It's not very often and uh, those kind of institutions like the Silicon Valley Bank, they don't even have a, a branch in this region. Yeah, it feels early in that sense. So I've worked with a lot of startups that are trying to raise debt financing uh, early on for a, a lack of dilution, or maybe they've over-diluted and they need a little bit of runway. Do you see that there's sufficient uh, private debt financing available to very early-stage startups, in your experience? Well, early-stage startups don't have anything to uh, use as collateral, so they, they can't do it by definition. Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing quite a lack of mezzanine loan availability, which might exist elsewhere, London and, and in the US as well. If I may perhaps mention, uh, there is a sort of an interesting uh, product that is not yet widespread, at least certainly not in this region, but is appearing slowly, which is revenue-based financing. Yeah, so which is, which is uh, sort of debt financing, obviously, uh, non-dilutive, uh, that may be particularly interesting for some early-stage founders who are really not 
willing to give away their precious little <laughs> company because there was a there was also an interesting study done like one or two years ago I think by by our colleagues at the AB which was looking at was the interest rate premium that European founders would be willing to take uh, or give away which already take it in order not to be diluted because there there is a general certainly in C as well I think there's still a bit of this mentality that Oh, the investor, like, what is what is he ever done for my company? This is my little baby that I've, you know, grown. Certainly for the older founders that started earlier in the 90s. So this revenue-based financing could be the this, this interesting product for them. Like, I don't see this becoming something huge, but it might be interesting where this goes. There is such fund based in Austria, although investing in a European manner. Uh, and I know that there are a couple that might be coming to the market uh, close to see, if not in see in a couple of years. So. Yeah, I love that you mentioned that because one of the limitations I see is that there's limited upside if you put an interest rate of, say, 10-15% on something, but unlimited downside because there's still a high likelihood of failure statistically of early stage companies. So a lot of financiers are unwilling to take that risk. Can I add to that? Yes. I don't agree that in CE we don't have uh, enough money yeah, to finance very good ideas. I would convert the question. I think that uh, if the idea is really good, we will find the money. Uh, the problem is that uh, the startup culture is now very cool, sexy. Yeah, people want to be part of it and they go into it just for fun. But uh, let's, let's revive back yeah, how this startup ecosystem was created, at least uh, in the Czech Republic, because um, I was kind of, I'm so old that I was part of it. Uh, there was this network, I think uh, the name was First Tuesday. We were going there, yeah, if you had ideas, you had a red flag. If you had money, you had green flag. And if you had influence, uh, being a journalist yeah, or uh, like, uh, person who is, uh, for example, organizing hubs, you had yellow flag. And those were the 90s. And in this moment, we had no zero capital investment, zero venture investment, but the best startups were founded. Yeah? Look at this, yeah? like Sesnam as uh, an alternative to Google, Alza as the alternative to Amazon, Rohlik as the alternative to basically delivery, yeah? e-commerce plus delivery, and uh, Slevomat uh, as, uh, as the result of Groupon. So I think those were the moments where there were zero money, but people were so dedicated to those ideas and there were such a kind of big problems on the market to kind of uh, solve that those people were actually able to fund either themselves uh, through like friends and families or they were putting such a good business models together that they were actually getting the funding immediately from the market. So I think now we are in the second season and we have more money than very good ideas. And if we have good ideas, uh, there is another kind of complementary problem. And I can say, because uh, I can compare the level of pitches here and the level of pitches in the Silicon Valley. The ideas are better here, but the level <coughs> of pitches is better in the Silicon Valley. Yeah? So our people sometimes, not I don't want to generalize, but uh, they need to be coach how to develop the sales pitch, yeah? how to present, how to get the idea across uh, very easily, how to calculate the financial plans. Yeah? And I think those are the skills which we are missing, but it's not about money, my view. 
I disagree with you disagreeing. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, now it starts to be interesting. Okay. Let's, let's, That's put, good. <laughs> let's put the facts together. Uh, yeah. There is orders of magnitude less money in this region available than in the US or in the EU, in yeah. the UK, for example. Yeah. I was living in the US for three years as well. I know the scene there. Money is not the issue, even though the volume of money uh, per startup or per capita is, is, is way smaller here. So from us as investors, I'm sure it's, it's a good news because it's underinvested region. So it, it, it's a, there's a higher chance to find the gems in this region. So, so money is not, not really the issue. And uh, I think uh, the reason why starting a company uh, is important, it should be fun. You know, it's, uh, if people are building companies from, because they want to have fun, it's good, because they, uh, if they are passionate about it, then they will not uh, burn out. But what I do agree with you is that the, the level of knowledge of how to build companies is not here as high. And that's why we need the role models who've been through those successes. We need to teach it, yeah? we need to practice, and we need to use our, uh, as you said, role models, because we have them, and it's, uh, we are a lucky generation that we know them personally. We do, but at the same and time, what we need to realize is that the VC industry is built on one out of ten companies succeeding. So yes. we, we should not be feeling bad about so many companies not succeeded because only Rohrlig and Cessna made it. This is the definition of this industry. Yeah. But from those thousands of companies, those hundreds will, will be the leaders of the ecosystem. They will employ many people because they grow bigger. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And maybe also to, to follow up on this, because I think Jan before very correctly mentioned that the image of startups in the broader society is that those are digital things that grow a bit and then are sold anyway. And, and yes, that's exactly, I think, also the problem we have and, and that's created through TV shows like Shark Tank and, <laughs> and so on. But it creates, in the end, a wrong image and a wrong incentive also. I think that what you should have in mind is build something that lasts, build something sustainable. And I, I think that's where also we come in, or we should come in with education, and, and it should also be fine to, or it should also be more graspable and accessible that some companies are actually bootstrapped. In, in Austria, some of the most successful companies, most successful startups we have, don't have any venture money or took really late venture money. So, for example, Bitpanda, which is our, our biggest unicorn, they, for, I think, five or six years didn't take any money. And just at the end, now at the growth stage, they took in some money. But I think the image of, of startups that are, is represented in the media versus the reality, what is possible, and what, what, what it really means to start something, there is a really big gap, and that we need to close. In, in a way, that, that's the survivorship bias. Right. I mean, you see, you see there we have good companies, they managed without VC. Well, yes, but perhaps there could have been more good companies if there was capital available. Yeah, I mean, for negative evidence, even now with a lot of capital in a way, uh, I know a story of two funds looking at the same opportunity once in know that that's crap, pretty much. Yeah, I'm not going to invest. It was a pre-seed, AI-focused technology. They're just working still on the tech, you, you know, no, not even pilot customers, nothing. It was sold for 20 million by the other fund that, that managed to, that actually decided to invest, right? So I think there is space. There is space. I, I respectfully disagree that, that there is too much money in this sense. I don't, don't say uh, too much money, I said money. Oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, in my experience, I also see a lot of noise and, you know, there's a kind of information asymmetry where the startup knows what they're doing, the investors don't. And there is a role to play, I think, from VCs to validate uh, startups and give them their first kind of uh, an advanced check on, uh, on their validation in the market. Okay, I have a question specifically for you, Marcus. You were talking about, so you're on the European startup network, so you have a very good view of uh, a lot of startups that are making a lot of change. So could you share maybe a first-hand story of some success story that you've seen out of the region? Of a startup or of a, startup, of a region yeah. that developed? No, a uh, of a startup. Yeah. Of a startup. One of my, my favorite ones from Austria that I, I really like to... Um, fall back on because it's it's uh, often so so nice to see them in action. It's it's called Mimo. It's a company that does a it's a coding school through an app. So the idea is that when you are going, you're commuting, you're going to work. Um, you always have these 15 minutes, 20 minute bits of time, and uh, they build uh, a coding school that is geared towards those times. So when you're in the, the metro, when you're I mean, tram that you can just do a quick coding lesson and through that learn a skill that is really valuable. And don't just believe it's valuable if you want to become a developer, but in general to understand how code works and how this digital world works. I think that's really nice. And the thing with them is the founders are really young. So they founded this pretty much early in, in university. There were 20 somethings. And one guy, especially, he. Yeah, he, he looks like he's 16 or so, and, and you, you often see him then pitching this, and then you see some older managers. One, for example, was one, one of our events, and we had one of the leading um, managers of a bank in Austria, and, and he was talking to him, and it was very much like, you know, in some way they were amazed by their spirit, but they also had the feeling, I think, that this is a small thing. And, and the company, like the startup was, I think, one year old, and he asked him how much revenue they are making. And then I don't remember the exact figure, but it was a million figure within, like seven figure sum within eight months or something like that. So really, really strong growth. And, and you really saw how this manager was amazed by this number. And it was suddenly, there was a lot of respect in the room. And I think uh, that's always something that I always like to have these underdogs that in some way also amaze, yeah, maybe people who have not expected that from them. Mm -hmm. I think you need those role models in an ecosystem to work. I think yeah, that's super that's something I like about venture, actually, is that the, the role models are age agnostic. They yes. come and uh, yeah, actually everything agnostic. Everything. It's so diverse. And, 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 uh, so diverse. There is, there is no, it's a world without, or that's not true, but with completely different status symbols. And this is, is super interesting because in some way culturally that breaks some of the barriers that, that we've built up in other areas of life. And Senta, can I ask you, so your, your role is centering around innovation. So could you perhaps share some uh, success stories that you've seen and what, what was the reason why they succeeded? Yes, and I will give you a couple of examples because I think that the first example, which is very important for CE region, is this UiPath, yeah, which Marianne already mentioned. And why it is important? Because UiPath is most probably the startup which can give us some additional brand for CE region. Yeah, they are coming from Romania, and the story is uh, quite uh, funny from the perspective of our region because they start uh, they have started as a small company like 10 people uh, and the company focused on outsourcing 
Uh, if you do outsourcing, you need to kind of um, serve many clients. So what do you do? You try to serve them in some kind of smart, systematic, strategic way. So what they did, and it was actually once uh, their CEO, uh, this Daniel Danesh, uh, returned from uh, US, where he served as a normal engineer in Microsoft, yeah, Redmond. He came back to Romania, and what he did, he started to basically optimize the outsourcing service here yeah, for his companies. And out of it, suddenly, and of course, in the right moment, yeah, on the right market, he actually came to the first product around RPA. With this RPA kind of idea, he approached our Czech venture capitalists, Credo Ventures. And I remember the conversation with Andrei Bartosz, uh, who basically talked to Dariel over Skype, or what was it, like 10 years ago. And they were discussing uh, his business model, Daniel's business model, and Andrei, he was completely lost because RPA was completely new to the market. So I think Andrei, believing in Daniel, because Daniel, I don't know if you met him, at least on some YouTube, He's very charismatic. He's, again, engineer by his background, but he is so smart, so strategic, and so kind of peculiar to execution. So, 70 years after, they are on the New York Stock Exchange. Their valuation is $35 billion. And they can actually be the startup who will actually build recognition for CE region if anyone connects Romania to CE. There is if. So this is the story which needs to be heard uh, in CE region. We need to kind of understand uh, what were the roots of success and whether those roots of success are actually repeatable and whether uh, some models could be like scalable. But I will tell you two success stories from our Deloitte uh, internal startup innovation program, Accelerator, which I lead. And it's a new story because we started just one year ago for CE region uh, before five years. We were building the, just the Czech accelerator. So one year CE accelerator. And we are already seeing some small successes. So the first success is with the startup called Serpent. Maybe you know about them. They are actually the startup uh, specialized uh, in machine learning, artificial intelligence, and they came to Deloitte, uh, let's Deloitte cooperate. Yeah, it's a Czech company, let's cooperate. And we said, like, why not? Uh, they are in the business of insurance, and they are actually uh, able to recognize all the fraudulent actions. So, for example, if you are a car owner here yeah, in Vienna, and if you raise your case yeah, in Vienna, and then two years years after you raise the same case using the same pictures in Prague, this startup will actually recognize that you are failing them. You are actually fooling them. So, so this is the first success story and we spread their network. This is like a Czech startup and through Deloitte they basically now offer this service across the whole CE region. So wonderful success. And the second success, and this is actually uh, what is important for this conference, is uh, the startup called Flowbox. Maybe you heard about them, maybe not. They are actually the startup in this sustainability business, which actually designed the algorithm based on hardware, IoT, as Jan said, and uh, lots of uh, data science, again, machine learning. And what they can do, they can basically come to any company, be it Siemens, be it Google, whatever, and they can optimize their energy flows. 
So they can say like, you spend too much, you should use more renewable resources, blah, blah, blah. This startup is actually, uh, again, located in the Czech market and they sell internationally and Deloitte not only uses or helps them to basically sell more, but actually invested into them, uh, not from CE region, actually CE region and also DCE region. So even German colleagues, French colleagues, Luxembourg colleagues were able to support them. And now we are also building the algorithms of some kind of predictive analysis. So with our fantastic engineers in Deloitte, we are helping this small startup to really succeed on the international market. So just those couple of success yeah, stories. It's and really, it's just the beginning. <laughs> no, thank you. It's, it's really fantastic to hear that you're putting skin in the game as yeah, Deloitte. Because, yeah. uh, so I started off my career in management consulting and we were often advising companies but not really having skin in the game. So I think for innovation, it's so important to align, align uh, your I, own incentives. I can talk about it like ages and ages. It's not easy at all. Okay. Yeah? I, it I goes against uh, the company culture and things like that. But uh, I think um, like demonstrating the successes and also being able to create internal startup even internally, maybe similar to Siemens. I will give you another example, and this is the Polish internal startup who is actually building, a, we call it data science platform in this kind of political way. But uh, to, to give you the understanding, it's like a artificial intelligence Lego. So they are using open source uh, artificial intelligence blocks to basically solve many problems in data science, and it can be from healthcare to climate to whatever. And they are local startup, local three people, yeah, located in Warsaw. Uh, we got them money, and next week, or is it next next week, uh, we are taking them to Istanbul to demonstrate to the partners in Deloitte, skeptical partners from Germany, France, blah, 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 that actually this internal startup culture could live yeah, within company like Deloitte and could bring success in uh, basically six months. Yeah, six months from the investment, we are already seeing the prototype. So, and uh, I could continue. We have uh, actually now, uh, after the first year of this kind of innovation focus, we have invested uh, into 11 internal startups uh, on the CEE region. And yes, not all of them will be like super successful, but I, I think we are building this culture. People are bringing us uh, the ideas and we are coaching them yeah, how to pitch in front of those big bananas who are actually giving them uh, money. And those are internal people. It's not like uh, uh, venture capitalism. So, That's so I, I am optimistic, yeah, but uh, I would say slightly optimistic because it's a tremendous work to basically keep changing the culture and keep persuading the people that we need to look forward to the trends and yeah, to the investment. And things like that. Thank you. A question for you, Mikhail, about EIF. So what's the role that EIF can take going forward to help to continue to foster or spin this flywheel in the CEE region? Simple put, we, we continue providing the capital, of course. <laughs> um, but doing it in a smart way as well, right? So, so it's not just allocating capital to anyone, but really picking the, the fund managers that add value, right? So, so smart money, as we call it. Of course, it's an overused term, I think, these days, and uh, a lot of people pretend they're smart money, but ultimately they just uh, throw, throw money around. But certainly we would like to support the best fund managers and therefore really channel the money to where it makes sense. Through this, we would like to encourage other private investors to tag along, which is happening a lot of times. So other investors that do not have 
especially those that do not have a lot of experience with the asset class they see, oh, EIF has made due diligence on this fund manager and, and, and they're in, so, yeah. you know, we're in, basically, and even without due diligence sometimes or something lighter. So, so we would like to remain the reference point for these investors, uh, certainly, and also a reference point in terms of market standards. So whatever we do, we, we really try to go for best practices, right? So no, no weird structures, no weird outside influences, but really independent teams that can, that can fully independently manage their own funds and, and remunerate it in a way which makes sense, but at the same time having a skin in the game. So all these things really need to, need to come together as a, as, a, as a proper puzzle. At the same time, we also are actually nowadays sometimes educating the broader investor base. So I was mentioning, for example, the Croatian pension funds. We actually did a workshop for, for them uh, where we sort of talked about our investment process and how to invest in, in, in VC, VC funds specifically. We're doing this now and then in other countries as well. So hopefully in this way we educate and also encourage the other investors to come in. At the same time, we advise governments, of course, how to address their policy objectives, so as broad as simply supporting a VC broadly, but also, for example, specific technologies particularly. So as an example, right now in Czech Republic, we are working with the, with the Minister of Industry and Trade on launching a new sort of fund of funds initiative specifically focused on disruptive technologies, like uh, distributed ledger technologies, uh, artificial intelligence, and so on. Part of this should be uh, a technology transfer fund connected to consortium of Czech universities, specifically uh, focus, uh, investing in, in artificial intelligence uh, projects and spin-offs. So, so these are the things that we sort of help the public sector with. We basically advise them how to do it and then implement it for them. And uh, finally, we will also like to keep nudging the market towards, let's say, new initiatives. So in the sense that so particularly in CE, given that we sort of lag behind, everything is kind of generalist these days. There are some first signs of more specialized funds focused on particular technologies and so on, but pretty much we were not generalist. And I think we're missing an opportunity, right? And we can certainly see that in, in the West you see many more like fintech fund or travel tech fund or mobility or whatever else. We think it makes sense. So, so nudging the markets towards specialized funds towards, towards niches and particularly sustainability. So this is a big topic for us. It's, of course, a big topic of the European Commission, which is a big investor of ours. So we manage all of their money and invest in these funds. And uh, I think it is one of those trains that CE can miss, really, right now. So hopefully we'll be here to also match some, some of the fund managers that are thinking about, okay, what should our strategy be on the market and so on, actually towards, towards these uh, particular topics that are really important. A few questions about a few few points to make about uh, EIF and uh, and supporting uh, funds. You know, funds are in a way also startups. You know, it's it's a company which uh, which wants to uh, make an impact. And uh, if raising from a fund of funds takes uh, 12 months or nine months, it's a long time. I would like to see a bit more innovative approaches from fund of funds and, and, and EIF because. If you have a startup and the startup would spend a year of its life on fundraising, the startup would die. Mm -hmm. And for example, especially in, in important segments like uh, climate, for example, we didn't raise for fund of funds because it, it just takes too long. Mm -hmm. And that's why we preferred uh, private capital because it's, it's much faster and it goes. And uh, from, from the fund of funds perspective, it would be great to see some innovation, not only on 
on how fast you do it, but if you need to be a professional fund manager to be able to invest, then it's a very limited class of people which can, can deploy the money. When you look at uh, the VC as an asset class, what the VC does, it keeps evolving new ways of working. For example, scout funds, you know, successful entrepreneurs who build companies, uh, who've raised funding before, they kind of have a good idea of how the industry works and they could be quite efficient at deploying good capital and not waste it. So I would like to see more innovation this way. It does a great job, EIF, because it's really a seed funds of, of many funds, but being more uh, flexible and innovative, it would even accelerate the entire VC industry. Yeah. yeah, I also see the EIF in this region as a huge catalyst for a lot of behavior, and, and the standard setting, I totally agree. Uh, which is a little bit ironic because normally it's the private sector that sets the standards and the public sector that follows. Uh, and we, would, we would gladly follow. <laughs> if, if we can, we follow. Well, it's sometimes. <laughs> something unique for me here is, is the quality of the team. Like you've taken people really from venture capital industry and put them into EIF rather than uh, you know, bureaucrats that uh, are manning the funds. So this is super impressive, but it seems to be almost a bottleneck of uh, talent. You can't get enough good people to deploy the money that you have. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to freestyle a little bit because we have 13 minutes left in the panel. So I'm going to jump to incorporate some audience questions that have been specifically targeted at you. So first is for you, Jan. Someone in the, in, in the audience is an industry 4.0 uh, enthusiast, and they would like to understand what are the industry trends that you see over, say, the next 10 years that might underpin innovation? Right, good question. This is something uh, <laughs> what we try to understand, you know, pretty intensive, right? What was the industry going to go within the next 10? I mean, typically it's five-year horizon, right? But 10 years, I would say that it goes more towards the autonomy, you know, like uh, there will be sort of like a convergence of technology, automation, and, of course, driven or, I'd say, driven by artificial intelligence. That's definitely what we can see. Of course, the people, I mean, in 10 years horizon, probably the people still be in the center. Now, they, this is what it's called now, Industry 5.0. I don't really like this term because it's sort of like a marketing thing, right? And for me also, it means that the industry, they just, you know, they just some of the companies just resign on to be really, I would say, cyber-physical system in place, right? So they still have the like, people in the, in, the, in the process. That's the way it is. But but I think that in a, maybe 20, 20 years horizon, when the more greenfield companies or greenfield factories, production facilities are going to be established, this would be definitely, I would say, even more autonomous and let's say more lights out. Depends on the type of production. Depends on what we gonna. What, we, what kind of the industry remains here in Europe, right? Because, I mean, the most of the, let's say, the mass type of production moved to China, India, maybe it, it remains there, right? So the, this, the nearshoring thing that's, that's relevant for certain industries, sort of s certain suppliers, but as the, a lot of the commodities are being, let's say, mined somewhere, I mean, in Asia, probably remains there, right? And especially, and also on top that, that sustainability efforts in Europe, I think it's a good thing, right? Because the nature doesn't wait for us. I mean, doesn't wait for the, when the war is over and something, you know, the, the globe is going to be, to warm it, be warming, right? So continuously, so we need to do something anyway. 
right? So, but on the other hand, we need to do it in a smart way in Europe. Otherwise, we are facing the, you know, the unemployment rate goes up, and that's the whole region probably suffers from that. Right? So, we need to do it in a, in a, in a smart way and invest exactly in a smart technology, digital enabled technology. That's, that's a far future of Europe. Yeah, absolutely. Santa, you mentioned earlier and something you said about education, that there's mm -hmm. a lack of education, and you actually came back to it in your last comment. Could you give an idea of what kind of educational changes you think would underpin increased innovation? Yes, and I see it actually like coming uh, from the top and also from the bottom, yeah? so, and then it meets somewhere in the middle. So from the top, uh, I think we need to be realistic. Uh, we know that uh, not all the leaders are innovators. And if we go back to the research of um, David Rook, he's telling us that we have seven types of leaders, and not all those seven types are able to innovate. And uh, he also uh, tells us uh, statistically in the population uh, how much of those innovative leaders we actually have. And this is this is the statistics, so this is the mathematics here, so we can't do too much about it. Uh, so, uh, out of those seven types, there are just three types of leaders who are actually happy to innovate. And uh, those, are, uh, those are either rebels, slash individualists, or strategists, or magicians. I think what we see in the unicorns are the magicians. But guess how many of percentage in population, we have those magicians. Any guesses? I will give you a good book for a good guess. 5%. Even less. 0 0.1? 0.1. In the statistical population where you have good business schools and good families, because it, it kind of comes both, uh, we have just 1% of those magicians. And those are the leaders of unicorns, startups, and things like that. Because what are those magicians special about? They inherited all those seven types of leadership, and they can actually motivate their people into their case, yeah, which could be like the startup idea, or it could be also some spiritual idea, yeah, like religion. Best role model in this is Zelensky, and his startup is actually to win the war. And uh, so, uh, going back to the education, uh, good news to all of us is that we can actually educate the leaders from one type of the leadership style to another because uh, the leaders actually like to be more strategic, more rebellious, yeah, more inspirational, better with, with the people, better with cooperation, better with creating ecosystems. So I'm a big believer that we can change the leaders, and some of them you need to really kind of reduce them and uh, call better, for example, into European Union, I would do that. But some of them you can basically educate, and you can educate them from rebels to strategists, you can still educate them, teaching them, for example, critical thinking, problem solving, uh, uh, masterminded coding, coding in cloud platforms, yeah, because this is the future. But you can't educate strategists into magician. There needs to be like a peer-to-peer -peer network which actually takes the strategist type of leader into the magician giving him or her, typically him, some of hints what really worked for him, and also giving him or her some of uh, introductions into the networks, because it's typically about communities, self-confidence, self-assurance, yeah, all those things. So on the top, I believe in education, leadership, mentoring, coaching, and peer-to-peer. Uh,
and plus lots of spirituality, because I think if you are a good magician, you also have some inner beliefs. Yeah, you are strong uh, spiritually. It's not only just strong technically. So this is my top view. And from the kids, what should our kids be good at? And I can compare kids. I have two kids myself, and one was educated in the US system and another one in the Czech system. Both are very smart and both will be like super successful. But if you send your kids to US, it goes faster because they come back uh, with networks, self-confidence, rhetorics, critical thinking, project thinking, problem solving, yeah? because those are the skills which are somehow inherited already in the US system. While our system, we are still, uh, we are still awarding the people who have a very good memory. So uh, with the kids, send them to wonderful schools and send them out of your comfort zones because they will come back and they will be actually able with their fantastic Ferdam Ravenets adaptability use the experience yeah, which they got plus they will come self-confident and self-assured. And of course, I am not an elitist. Not all the families can afford to send their kids to best schools. But I think it should be us to support the talents and to send even those who are from poor families, poor, poor backgrounds here, yeah, uh, to wonderful schools, because this will come back as innovation, as creativity, as stability, as sustainability, and all of that. So I'm a big believer. And until we do this, because it will take, as I said, two, three generations, we, sitting here, we should teach. That's why I'm teaching. We should basically get the know-how to the society as soon as possible. So to the kids, to the high schoolers. And you, you should teach not every day, but you should teach maybe like one day a week, yeah? something mm. like that. And then we are basically giving back to the society. They are looking at us as the role models. We, we can connect them to our network. And this is how the hard work for two, three generations starts. Absolutely. Mariam wants to make a comment <laughs> to that. One point, and one point is uh, financial literacy. Yeah. So this region overall uh, is not very good at managing their own life. And this is a conference about sustainable finance. Back in November last year, I was at, a, at an event in New York uh, with the new mayor-elect of, of New York. And he was uh, sharing his vision. By the way, he gets his salary in Bitcoin uh, <laughs> mm, so nice. ever since. That's good. Not and, so much today. And he was talking about his vision for smart city of New York. And his vision for smart city is to have smart people in the financial sense. So how many people here are managing actively the, the pension insurance, you know? We save a lot of money throughout life, and if you just make a very small uh, little tweak at the beginning of, of how you set it up, by the time, 40 years later, you're going to be a millionaire because you, you invested it wisely. And uh, being financially literate is such an important topic, and you don't even teach it in, in, in classrooms. And uh, this is just my, my small, small point to pay much more attention to this because people don't understand the finances, and they should. Mm. Mm -hmm. So maybe we're in our last three minutes. I want just a bite-sized a bite comment. We, so I, I always tell my wife that I'm in the business of saying no because as venture capitalists, we say, unfortunately, no to 98% of the things that we see. But uh, despite that, I think I'm an optimist. I'd love to hear some optimism from you. What gives you hope? I'll start with you, Marcus. What gives you hope and uh, optimism for the region <laughs> in terms of innovation? The talent. 
mostly. I, I think there is smart brains in the region. I, I think uh, with the right tools, if we give them the right tools, and yes, education plays a big role there, I think we, we can build a prosperous future and, and yeah, tackle the challenges that, that are ahead of us. I think what on an educational level might be a good best practice also from Austria, what we did, we went into schools and did entrepreneurship weeks. So we are now in more than 100 schools where we actually let children experience how it is to start something themselves. Usually a project within four days um, doesn't have to be a big thing, but just this experience of, yes, you can actually do something. And, and we see big changes in willingness to do something in terms of entrepreneurship afterwards. And, and then uh, I think we, we might have also on the European level at least some leadership now where uh, you have the feeling that things are moving. I, I was in, in, in France at the Elysee in last June where Macron presented this Scale Up Europe strategy. And in German there's a word called Chefsache, which means that something needs to be tackled by the boss. And, and I really think we are at that level now where you need top-level leadership going ahead. And I think with Macron, you have someone in Europe who's, who's quite central and who has that topic at heart. And that gives me heart because I think he also sees Europe as a whole and not just France, but Europe. While I don't agree with everything he said, he said also, for example, that the goal should be that there, in Europe we have at least 10 of these 100 billion dollar companies and I think he shot himself in the foot with that because now with the current macro environment this will be very challenging and um, I think it would have been much smarter to take something more upstream as a goal but yes mm. I think generally have people that have that close to their heart I think is, is gives me hope. Okay. Thank you. And uh, Mika, I'll give you the closing word on where you see, what are you optimistic about in the next uh, well, 10 years, hope. let's say? To be honest, everything. I think things are moving in the right direction, in both in CE and in Europe. We mentioned multiple obstacles here. None of them are unsurmountable. None of them will, I think, change the trends. We're moving in the right direction. Can I have uh, one more remark? Absolutely. I think that for innovation we need diversity. So we need uh, to stop being uh, bureaucratical and hierarchical and we need to uh, get more chances to young people who are really talented. Uh, and I think this is giving us the problem because we are hierarchical as the Austrian-Hungarian <laughs> empire. And plus, so diversity is my first uh, kind of hope. And the second hope, which is even bigger, is Actually, in our CE region, we have the best practices. Uh, we have them in, uh, in Estonia, we have them in Israel, it's close to Europe. So why don't we uh, take those Estonians and Israelians as our advisors, or why don't we nominate them to the European Union, to the, to the boards of innovations and things like that, and why don't we take their, their algorithms and their processes and just apply them? I think our problem is that what is not invented here doesn't kind of uh, attract us, but this is stupid. And so just take what is already designed and make it happen. Okay, thank you. Time is up, so we have to wrap up, but I completely agree with what the panelists said. And actually, from a personal perspective, I'm in, I, I've come here because I believe that now is the best time to be in the innovation, uh, in the CEE region for innovation. So I'm very, very bullish and optimistic for the future. So thank you very much to the panelists. Thank you very much to uh, ISFC for this brilliant summit you've organized. I wish everybody all the best to enjoy the rest of the summit and have a nice rest of the week. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to Sustainability in Finance. Check out our website at isfc.org and make sure to follow us on social media for more content. We hope you join us for the next episode.